0: Hello, everybody. Hello. Hello. Happy, Happy Wednesday night. It's uh, great to see you all out here tonight. Uh, thanks for coming out. Um, Pastor Phil is down near Shenandoah, Virginia, if you know where Shenandoah is. Uh, it's actually where my grandma grew up, so I, I, I've never really been there. But I, I've, I've heard stories about the area. And um, he went down there to do a, uh, an HVAC uh, job for the church. And of course, the pastor said, oh, by the way, while well, you're here, do you want to preach? And <laughs> hey, Come on, Pastor Phil can't say no, so he's preaching tonight. I believe it's uh, Freedom Baptist Church, I believe is the name of it. But uh, grab your Bibles. We're going to be into a message tonight. Um, we're going to start off in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we'll be a couple of places all in the book of Matthew tonight. And uh, I'm honored that this church allows me to come up here and preach. You know, Brother Tom says, hey, we like your messages. Well, listen. These aren't my messages. These are God's messages. Um, anytime pastor asks me to preach, the first thing I do is I, I pray to God. I say, hey, use me to deliver your words, your message. I don't want it to be my words or my message. I want it to be your message, Lord, whatever we need to hear. And faithfully, God answers that prayer. Um, every time I've been asked to preach, God will give me a message, usually the same week. Uh, and this week is no exception. So what I want to do tonight is I want to preach a message called, what would we do? What would we do? And uh, you might know where I'm going with this, but if you don't, let me ask you a question. Uh, Or maybe let's do a show of hands. If you've ever heard of the letters WWJD, Shalisha laughed. (laughs) She laughed. We all know what that means, right? What would Jesus do? Okay? Now, listen, if you don't know what it means, back in the, I suppose it was the the mid-90s, the early 2000s, there was this movement with these bright-colored bracelets. It was like rubber bracelets. They'd be green, red, yellow, whatever color, blue. And they just had four letters on them, WWJD. And I think the whole idea was, it stood for, what would Jesus do? You were supposed to, when you found yourself in one of life's crazy situations, you're supposed to stop, look at your bracelet and say, oh yeah, wait a minute, what would Jesus do? And consider what Christ would do, and then that should influence how you act. Now, a funny thing is, if you ask Christians these days, Baptists, any denomination, ask them if if those bracelets were a good idea. You wouldn't believe the controversy associated with those bracelets. I mean, I I think it's a simple message and a good one, but uh, if you look online, like WWJD, you'll find a lot of people that are like, "That's not biblical, it's not sound doctrine, it's not this, it's not that, and listen, we're not going to argue about that tonight. I'm not taking a side, I don't know if they are or if they aren't. Anything that gets your mind on Christ is probably a good thing, but all I know is, well, someone made a lot of money selling those bracelets, right? Uh, So, what we're going to talk about tonight is, what would we do? Because it's easy to find ourselves in a situation and ask, what would Jesus do? Now, we have the Bible, we have the Gospels, we can read the records and the accounts of what Christ did, we know what Jesus would do. But the question tonight is not that, the question is, what would we do? And what I want to do, as we go through the Gospel of Matthew and look at some situations, I want us to look at situations that Jesus Christ was in. And I want to say, if that was us in that position, what would we have done? What would we have done? And you might say, Brother Rob, why why are we even talking about this? Listen, it's good for ourselves to examine ourselves through Scripture. In other words, if I compare myself to Christ, I know I'm going to fall way short every time. I know we're going to fall short. We, We can't live up to Jesus Christ. But as I kind of studied this this week, I realized just how every single thing that Jesus did not even just the miracles, every single thing that Jesus did was maybe so far different than what we would want to do in those situations. And it's really eye-opening to me because we need to understand that we can't hope to be at Christ's level. We can't hope to be just like him. But over time, God promises that he will make us, as saved born-again believers, he will make us to be more like Jesus Christ in time. And so I hope this message is encouraging to you by the time we get to the end of it that you will see that even though Jesus Christ set the bar as high as one could possibly set the bar, if we're making progress toward that bar, even if it's little baby steps, that's a great thing. So turn with me uh, in your Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 4, the gospel of Matthew chapter 4. And I want to examine some situations tonight that Jesus Christ was in, and with each of these situations, there's three of them, we're going to consider What would I have done or what would we have done if we were in that position? Would we have acted differently? And the answer I can best come up with is yes, we would have. So Matthew chapter 4, we're going to read a little bit of scripture tonight. I'm going to read the first 10 verses of Matthew 4. But this is right after Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist in the river Jordan. And he's going and he's into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This is that passage where he's tempted by the devil in the wilderness. So I'm going to read the first uh, 10 verses. But before we do that, let's, uh, let's pray for the message tonight. Amen. Uh, Heavenly Father, Thank you, Lord, that we can uh, be gathered here together tonight, Lord. Thank you for this church building. Uh, Thank you for this city that we have, Lord, and this community that we can serve you in. Uh, I just pray, Lord, that this message tonight would come straight from you, uh, that you would speak to us through your word, speak to us through the character of Jesus Christ, speak to us through the righteousness of Christ, Lord, and help us to examine ourselves, not to be discouraged, Lord, but contrary, to be encouraged uh, by what you're doing with us, by what your promises are, and help us to see, Lord, uh, your perfection, your love, your grace, your mercy. Help us to see all of it, Lord, and help us to understand how much it really means to us, each and every one of us. And I pray for this message tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right, Matthew chapter 4. Let's get right into the, to the word here. From verses 1 through 10. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward a hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Again the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them, and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Amen. Amen. So this is a famous passage. It's recorded in multiple Gospels where Jesus is being tempted of the devil. And what I find perhaps just amazing about this passage, and really about the Word of God, is the fact that we can actually witness this whole scene. So you have Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and you have the devil trying to get Jesus Christ to fall. And we get a front row ticket with the word of God to see what happens. And this is amazing. There was no disciples there. You realize that? John the Baptist wasn't there. There was no angels there at this point. We get a front row seat here in the gospel to see what happens when you have Jesus Christ and the devil together and they're, having, they're really combating with each other. You see, Jesus is quoting scripture to tell the devil why he's wrong. And you see, the devil is also trying to twist scripture around to tell Jesus why Maybe he he could do it. You see, in verse 6, when he's telling Jesus to throw himself down off the temple, the devil is quoting Scripture. You know what that tells me? That tells me Scripture can be used wrongly. Amen? And in this world, so many times don't we see that there's churches who are taking this Word of God and they're twisting it backwards, left and right, upside down. They're pulling something out of it that's not really in it. It's not what God would say. It's not good doctrine. And what do you have to do as a believer? Well, Jesus responds to that with scripture again, doesn't he? And he tells the devil what's right about the scripture. And so knowing the word of God is crucial, but I don't want to get off topic here. What I want to examine really is the third temptation here. So the devil tries to get Jesus to eat. He tries to get him to turn rocks into bread. Now, I've never fasted for 40 days. I don't know how hungry Christ was. I fasted for 24 hours once, and uh, that felt like the longest time I've ever experienced in my life. I think I had 24 chicken wings when I hit the 24-hour mark just to get past it. But uh, Jesus is obviously hungry, and his body feels in a way that I, can't never, I could never even imagine. But he still, he, hands, he still stands strong. And then the devil tempts him, saying, hey, throw yourself off the temple, because God's angels, they're going to protect you. And God says, well, I can't tempt God like that. It's not my place to force God to do something just because I'm reckless. Jesus says no. But the third time, the devil tempts Jesus with all the kingdoms of the world, past, present, and future. Now what I find really astounding here is let me ask you this question. Who do the kingdoms of the earth belong to? They belong to Jesus Christ. Every kingdom on this earth belongs to Jesus Christ. Now we know that Jesus is in heaven right now and he's not reigning in this world right now. We know the devil's rampant on the loose right now and the devil may think that he has control over all these kingdoms, but who's the rightful king of kings and lord of lords? It is our lord and savior Jesus Christ and he is the one. He is the only one who can lay claim to every kingdom on earth. And so for the devil to even offer the kingdoms of this world to Jesus is very much not even a possibility. The devil can't even do this. But Jesus responds with, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. But let me ask you, if we were in the situation of Jesus Christ here, in this particular situation, what would we do if we were face to face with our adversary, the devil, being tempted? Now, Jesus was fully man and fully God. As being fully God, I do not believe it was possible for him to sin, but it is possible for man to sin. And if I was in this position... And maybe you can think about this the same way for yourself. I can think about two ways I might actually respond in this situation. Number number one, I might want to take the kingdoms of the earth right now. Honestly, if I'm in Jesus' shoes here, all these kingdoms are rightfully mine. They rightfully belong to me. I'm going to have them in eternity anyway. Why not just take them right now? Would it, would, it, would it be wrong to take what is rightfully his? Would it be wrong for Christ to do that? Well, we know what happened, and I think what we can take away from that is, as humans, we fall short when it comes to instant gratification. You know, Jesus Christ is going to have every kingdom on earth when he comes back to reign for the second time, but he has to be patient because it wasn't his time yet to have those kingdoms. But if it was me, I might say, oh, yeah, this is the one thing in life that I've always wanted, and I could have it now? Okay, yeah, I'll have it. Listen, if I, if, I, if I talk to my son, who's four years old, and I said, hey, here's a chocolate chip cookie. Do you want it now, or do you want to wait 10 hours and have it in 10 hours? Listen, he's <laughs> I don't have to ask him the question. He's, his eyes are going to get as big as his head is. He's going to say, give me the cookie. I want that cookie right now. And that's our human nature. That's our human flesh. We want things right away. But you see, Christ he was patient here. Even though the, dem- the devil was trying to tempt him with something that was rightfully already his, he still stood his ground. But number two, you know how I think we might act or respond in this situation if we were in the shoes of Jesus Christ? I get pretty sick of the devil already, and I don't have to go through what Jesus went through in the wilderness, being argued, <laughs> arguing with the devil for 40 days and 40 nights, but Maybe, just maybe, Jesus could have said, you know what? I'm done with you, devil. I'm going to take you out right now. I'm going to smite you down. You're not going to bother anyone. You're not going to bother any people. You're not going to bother anybody ever again because I'm just going to knock you out and take you out right now. And if it was me, I don't know if you've ever been like itching to be in a fight. Uh, ever since I quit cigarettes, I, I've been better. <laughs> I remember there was a time where, uh, I, you know, You just have like a chip on this shoulder, a chip on the shoulder, like Pringles cans. And you're just like, I just need to fight somebody. And there's something about us that craves um, strife and combat. I don't know why. I don't know why. I mean, but all you have to do is look at what humanity does. Humanity fights in wars. Do animals fight in wars? Not like we do. You know, something about us craves that conflict. And Jesus Christ could have just smacked the devil down and made him just shut up and stop talking. But he was patient. I don't think I would have had that patience. I think I would have done something about it. I would have been like, I'm tired of you tempting me in this way. I'm just going to squelch you and take you out right now. But it reminds me of something. I'm going to give a little illustration here or a little imagery. Um, and I don't want to go too far into this because it's not really uh, part of the message, but I can't help myself. Has anyone ever seen Lord of the Rings? Amen. Or read the books, Lord of the Rings? Okay, well, there's a creature in that, in that movie or in those books, uh, called Gollum. And uh, the reason I bring up Gollum from Lord of the Rings is the author, J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings, um, wrote them about 90 years ago as uh, he fought in World War I. He saw a lot of horrible things. And I believe he was a saved person. I believe he was a Christian. But he put some of the Christian themes and imagery into Lord of the Rings. Well, there's a character in Lord of the Rings called Gollum. And it's a character you're not meant to like. He's really annoying, he's really persistent, he never leaves our heroes alone, he's only after one thing, he's, he's just awful in every single way, and when I look at Gollum, I kind of think about the devil, <laughs> because it's just this, this, this persona of someone that's nagging you and bothering you, and always after you, and yet you really just can't do anything about it, it just kind of is what it is, you just have to kind of live with it. And I wonder if the reason that Jesus was so patient, and he let the devil do all this, is because there was a role for the devil left to play. I mean, here we are in the year 2024. The devil's still out there trying to wreak havoc on people's lives your lives, my lives, my life, my family's lives, everyone. And why does God allow it to keep happening? You know, that's, a, that's a fair question to ask. I don't really have the answer for you, but I do know that the devil is going to get his judgment when the time comes. Amen? The devil will absolutely be judged for everything that he's done, and it's inevitable. Nothing that anyone does, nothing that even the devil does will ever change that. And in the end of Lord of the Rings, Gollum finds himself, as he's searching after the thing he's trying to get so badly, he ends up falling headfirst into a burning river of fire. Now that's that's a coincidence or it's not. What's going to happen to the devil one day? He's going to be cast into a burning lake of fire. That's what the Bible says. That's his fate. It was made for the devil and his angels, the lake of fire. And... I think it's important for us to know and it's important for us to realize that just because we don't have all the answers, we may not know why the devil's out there in the world doing all these things. God has his purposes. Whether or not we understand God's purposes, God has his purposes. And whether or not we know and understand exactly what God's doing, God knows what he's doing. And that needs to be enough for us. We may not always have all the answers. I can't tell you why some of us go through hardships and some of us don't, or why we go through hardships at different times, why some of us are blessed with certain things and others others of us seem like no matter what, we're never going to be blessed. You listen, I mean, even people in the church go through tragedies, right? It happens. Why does God let it happen? God has his purposes. We need to learn that we yield to God always and let him run his course. Because if we're trusting in God, you know who we're not trusting in? We're not trusting in ourselves. We should always trust in God instead of trusting in ourselves. But one more thing about Gollum. Gollum is after the one ring in Lord of the Rings. He's after the ring of power. He's after this ring that can give you immortality, basically. And the degree to which he's crazy about that ring is uh, enough to make lots of jokes and this and that. But I I saw somewhere this... um, I don't know if it was a young woman or not, posted online. She says, hey, if you're trying to find the right man for you, find someone who loves you like Gollum loves the precious. And I said, well, (laughs) wait a minute, that's a pretty high bar because there's absolutely nothing that Gollum loves more than the precious. I I don't even know what it would mean like to love someone like that, to be that desirous of someone. And it, it may sound funny, but, you know, really, the only person I can think of that loves us like that is God. Do you realize, like, do you ever stop and think about how crazy he is, how crazy God is about you as a human being, how in love God is with you? I'm not saying we deserve it. We may feel guilty that he loves us, but God loves us enough that he gave up everything, gave up perfection and humanity to come down here and live a life where he knew he was going to be tortured to death. And he did it just for us. He did it because he knew that if he did it, there would be a possibility that we could spend eternity with him together in heaven. And that's what he wants. He gave up everything to try to get us. That's how much God loves each and every single one of us. Amen? And so don't go looking for Gollum. (laughs) If you want to find someone who loves you and someone who could never, could not possibly love you anymore, it's God. It's God. I see plenty of people out there in life, plenty of people who look lost. They don't look like they have hope. They don't look like they know what they're supposed to do. And they, they struggle with anxiety, fear, depression. I mean, crippling levels of anxiety, fear, and depression. And a lot of them are younger people, younger generations. And the younger generations are so susceptible to it because they're not finding the love of God. Listen, you find it when you read the Bible. You find the love of God in here. You don't find it when you're on the Internet. Not necessarily. Unless you're reading Scripture on the Internet, the Internet's going to give you something else. Some kind of a lie, some kind of this or that. But please, please try to get through to our young people. Please try to reach them and tell them. Even if it's just a young person at the Wawa, you know, a 16-year-old who's pushing around the trash cart. Could you tell that person that God loves them? Tell them, hey, God loves you. Jesus loves you. Those words may not sound like much, but I promise you, if God wants you to talk to that person, they will not forget those words. And those words, Jesus loves you, have a way of taking seed and taking root up in your heart to do something one day. So never never turn down the Holy Spirit's call when the Holy Spirit's telling you to go talk to somebody about Christ. We just got to do it. Even if we look silly, (laughs) listen, we may look the silliest. Who cares? What's more important, the way we look or obeying our our Father in heaven? That's far more important. Okay. So, let's keep going with the message. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. Go ahead a few chapters here to Matthew chapter 13. So, I think if we were in Jesus' position in the wilderness, being tempted of the devil... I don't know about you, but I would not have responded the way Jesus did, I'm, I'm sorry to say. I'm not, I'm not Christ, I, I would have had my faults there. But in Matthew chapter 13, we're going to read from verses 53 to 58, we find another situation, and this is the homecoming of Christ. This is Christ returning to his hometown that he grew up in, and we're going to find out what happened to him there. Now this is well into Jesus' ministry, a year or two into his ministry. So in other words, Christ has already been walking around, performing miracles, healing the sick, making the blind men to see, making the lame to walk. Christ has been healing everybody, but he goes back to his hometown in Galilee, and what happens there is amazing to me, and it's astounding, and frankly, on behalf of humanity, it's embarrassing. It's very embarrassing the way that Jesus Christ is treated when he goes back to his hometown. So let's read Matthew chapter 13. I'm going to read from verses 53 to 58. And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed thence. And when he was come into his own country, he taught them in their synagogues, insomuch that they were astonished and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary?' and his brethren James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Whence then hath this man all these things? And they were offended in him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. And he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So Jesus goes to his hometown. He should be heralded as a hero, the Messiah coming home. The one we've heard about healing the sick, raising the dead, curing ailments that had never been cured before, making the blind to see. He comes back to his hometown, and they're offended at him. They don't want to believe he is who he says he is. They don't want to believe he is who everybody else says he is. And you see that it says there in verse 58, He did not their many works because of their unbelief. Now we need to talk about the works of Christ real quick because it's it's really critical that we understand this. When Christ performs miracles in the Gospels, there's one ingredient that he almost always requires of the recipient. Do you know what that is? Belief, faith, faith. Listen, if you study all the miracles of Christ, you'll find that over and over and over again, Christ healed the people who had faith that he could do it. In other words, without faith, Christ might have just kept walking, I don't know. They had to believe that he was the son of God. They had to believe that he had the power to do what he said he was gonna do. Remember the centurion when he said, "'Go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole.'" Listen, faith is serious. And what Jesus found when he went to his hometown, what he found was a lack of faith. He found people that didn't believe, Now, maybe it's because they knew him growing up. And they said, oh, it's Mary's son, the carpenter's son. It can't be the Messiah. He's just, we knew him as a boy. Listen, you can come up with any way you want to rationalize why Jesus Christ is not the Son of God. If you want to rationalize why he's not the Savior, listen, there's billions of people who do it every day. But you're going to come to a conclusion one day. And that is, if you search everywhere else out there in the universe to find something that's going to give you the hope and peace and salvation of Jesus Christ, you're going to come up empty-handed. Because Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by him. That means that there is no other way. The only way to get to heaven is by faith in the perfect work of Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus was ministering, he was looking for faith, and he was healing people that had faith. But in his own country, in his own hometown, he did not find it. And what did he do? Well, we see what he did. He said, okay, I'll just go to the next town. He didn't do many works there because of their unbelief. He just stopped and said, that, well, that's it. If you don't believe that I am the Son of God and that I can heal you, I'm wasting my time here. And he went to find people who did have faith. And I just got to say, if this was us in this situation, that's the theme of this message, is wondering, how would we respond as humans to this situation? I think we would respond differently in this situation than Jesus did. Because Jesus understood that faith was critical to miracles, and he went somewhere else to find it. You know what we would have done? Listen, funny things happen around the holidays. I've seen this. When uh, Thanksgiving starts rolling around, when Christmas starts rolling around, when you realize you're about to see your family again or your, your friends that you haven't seen in a year, two years, three years, people start acting funny. Listen, I used to work at a car dealership. People would buy cars before Thanksgiving. Why? Why? Oh, I want to roll up to Thanksgiving in a brand new car. Why? Oh, I want to impress my family. Why? Why? I don't know. I just, I need to do it. <laughs> it's like, it's this human drive. I need to impress all the people. Like I remember in grade school and in middle school and in high school, you could tell the people that worked all summer trying to get somewhere, establish themselves, change their look, whatever, so that they could come back from summer break and be like, whoa, look at them. You know, like we have an, a desire to impress people and we have an innate desire to impress those around us. And so it's not just new cars. It could be new hairstyles, new clothes, new this, new that. But I think if we were challenged with, with what Christ faced here when he went home, I think we would have been like, you know what? I'm going to show you more miracles than you've ever seen in your life. I'm going to heal everybody in this town. I'm not going to stop. I'm going to turn everything upside down, bring over all the cuts, the scrapes, the broken bones, all the possessed. That's, we're, just, we're going to heal everybody. I'm going to prove to you all that I am who I say I am. Jesus didn't do that. I think I would have been tempted to do that. Because I would have taken it personally, you know? And that's just my human nature is wanting, wanting to show other people. It's really pride when you think about it, isn't it? It's pride in wanting to show people how highly esteemed you are in your own mind. And if if I was in Christ's shoes, how much more proud could I be, you know? But I thank God that I'm not, I didn't have to deal with these situations because if it was me, I, I would have. Failed horribly. I would have failed horribly. But Jesus, enduring this, we may not even think of this chapter as temptation. I guarantee you he felt tempted. Because it's not like Jesus Christ was born in some far off country and came to Israel. He did grow up here. He did see these people. And he had to deal with the people that loved him the most as a young person, being offended and disgusted by him. I mean, how much hurt and ridicule did he have to endure? He's not even at the cross yet. And he's being shamed by his own hometown. It hurts. The pain that Christ felt all throughout his ministry is real pain. And it's pain that we can't really ever understand. But thank God, thank God that Jesus stood his ground and did the right thing every single time. Because when I read the scriptures, I see time after time after time where any single one of us in his shoes would have made the wrong decision and it all would have stopped. But Jesus. All he does is make right decisions. He proves why he's God when you read the scriptures. It's obvious because no human being could ever pull this off. Only one, the Son of God. All right, we're going to look at one more situation here. Go to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. Keep things moving. And if you don't believe me that people try to impress those around the holidays and this and that, if you've ever met someone who, um, let's say, had a bad breakup and broke up with somebody and then uh, saw them like six months later, I guarantee you they were working hard. If they were the one who got broken up with, they definitely wanted to prove to that person that they made a bad decision. That's just, that's just human nature. Uh, not really part of the message, but I think it's something we can relate to. All right, Matthew chapter 26. Now we're getting close to the end of the gospel of Matthew here. But this is the last day, the last night. This is the night of the Last Supper, uh, right before, this is where they're gonna have the Passover meal. And this is right before Christ goes out and he ends up being betrayed. So we're gonna read Matthew chapter 26. We're gonna read a a good amount of scripture here. I'm gonna read from verses 19 all the way to verse 36. And I wanna read about um, Christ's final night with his disciples and what happened. Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 19. And the disciples did as Jesus had appointed them, and they made ready the Passover. Now when the even was come, he sat down with the twelve. And as they did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. And they were exceeding sorrowful, and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. The Son of Man goeth as it is written of him, but woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? He said unto him, Thou hast said. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and brake it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, Drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Then saith Jesus unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. Peter answered and said unto him, Though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee that this night before the cock crow thou shalt deny me thrice. Peter said unto him, Though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. Likewise also said all the disciples. Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane. And saith unto the disciples, sit ye here, while I go and pray yonder. Amen. So this is the final night. This is hours before Christ is betrayed. And he sits down to dinner with his disciples at the Passover. And this scene, I just, have you ever been in a, let's say, a tableside dinner, and all of a sudden the conversation got way too serious for, for the room, or way too serious for the crowd, and you're like, all I want to do is jump out of my skin and just be a million miles from here. I don't want to be anywhere near what's going on at this table. I think this was that kind of moment, this kind of tension. Because Christ says, clearly says, one of you this night is going to betray me. And they start looking at each other like, who? Is, is it me? Is it, they're scared. They're confused. They don't know. And Judah says, is it me? And Christ says, thou hast said Christ knows he's going to be betrayed. Point two, Christ knows who's going to betray him. Christ already knows it's Judas. And even after he points that out to all of his disciples in front of all of them, you know what happens? Things just carry on. Christ continues to go on with dinner. (laughs) He continues to serve. In the Gospel of John, he washes their feet. He's washing the feet of Judas. He's washing the feet of the man who's hours away from betraying him and ending up with him getting killed. Christ doesn't skip a beat. He doesn't sing a different tune. He doesn't change anything. He continues to do what he set out to do. Why? He's obeying the will of God the Father. Jesus Christ's only interest is in obeying the will of God the Father. And in this moment, i just, I got to ask, what would we have done at that dinner table if we were in Christ's shoes? And it's hard for me to really think about <laughs> to imagine I, I kind of picture it in my head but you know what I would have done and I, I would like to think oh I wouldn't do this but I, I think the answer is yeah I would Christ had 12 disciples there one of them was a bad guy who was going to betray him 11 of them would have followed him almost anywhere right I mean we know that they get scattered around when he gets crucified but they had faith they knew who he was they were saved people Christ could have uh he could have just pointed out who Judas was front and center and said, there, it's you, it's him. And with a nudge, nudge, wink, wink, I think Christ could have been hands off and he could have let the disciples handle it. I mean, I, this is not like a mafia moment, but <laughs> listen, like, where do, you, where do you think human nature comes from? Like, people in the mafia, okay, they're, they're mafia people, but they're still just people, right? We love people, we hate people, we have all kinds of emotions. The disciples, if they had known what was going to happen to Christ, do you think they would have acted? Do you think they would have tried to stop it? Do you think they would have gladly taken a run at Judas to try and do something to change the course of this thing? I think so. And if Christ had done any number of things to give them this signal, he could have made it happen. I mean, he he would have he wouldn't have had to lay a finger on Judas. He had 11 guys there. And if it was me, I think I would have fallen here. I think I would have fallen here too, <laughs> because I think I would have led my disciples into a situation where now they're attacking the betrayer. And again, does the gospel work if Jesus Christ does anything differently here? No, it really doesn't. The gospel works because Christ did it exactly the way God the Father wanted him to do it. Every single step of every single day, every decision that Jesus Christ made was the right decision. He didn't have to think about it. And it didn't bother him, he just did it. I mean, this, this is amazing, the degree of decision making of Jesus Christ. And it's it's amazing to see how we could never, ever, ever put together a run like this. Listen, I I I could probably be good for like 15 minutes. <laughs> Amen. I can't be good like Jesus for three years, for 30 years, for eternity. I, I can't do it. This is why I need a savior. This is why my faith is in Jesus Christ. I know I can't do it, but I know that He did it. So let's let's call it. A response number one at the dinner table. What would we have done? I think we would have fouled it up. But let's talk about a little bit further. So in verse 36 of this chapter, Jesus says to his disciples in the garden of Gethsemane, he says, Sit here yonder. Keep watch. I'm gonna go pray. You realize what, what, God, what Jesus is doing here? He's gonna go pray. He's minutes, maybe a half an hour, 45 minutes away from being betrayed. He's about to be captured and put on trial for crimes he's never committed. And he goes off to just go pray. It's not like he doesn't know what's going to happen. He he knows. Jesus knows. He knows what he's walking into, he knows the trap that's being laid for him. And he goes to pray, he goes to commune with God the Father. What would I have done? I'm thankful that God leaves our futures a little bit up in the air. In other words, we we aren't born knowing how long we have to live, right? You know, if I knew that tomorrow was the day I was going to pass away, if I somehow knew that, would it influence the way that I acted today? Yeah, 100%. Now, listen, I have a wife and kids, so I'd be constrained by that. But if I didn't have a wife and kids... What would I do today if I knew that tomorrow was the day I was going to die? Uh, I would probably go drain my bank account. I would probably go max out my credit cards. I would probably go do whatever I wanted to do. I'd be like, "Listen, I got one one day left. This one chance left. I'm just going to go live it up. I'm just going to go do whatever. All the things that I always wanted to do, I'm going to go do because why not? What, what does it matter? There's no consequences because tomorrow I'm dead. And this is the situation that Jesus is in because he knows. He knows what what awaits him. He knows what he's about to face. Does he run away and try to go live a life of pleasure for one day, for one hour? Experience things that he never did? No. What does he do? He goes and prays. Now think about that for a second. He's about to be with God the Father. Because when Christ dies on the cross, he goes to be with God the Father. And yet, right before that moment, he's off there praying to talk to God. He considers that that's the most important thing he has to do at that moment. And I wonder for all of us, you know, if it was our last day on earth and we knew it, would we spend hours of that day in prayer? That might be the last thing we think about. But you see, that that mindset, that mentality shows how different is the mind of Christ than the mind of us. And again, it's not meant to be a discouragement. I'm going to come to a conclusion here that I hope is going to wrap this thing all together, but... Here's another moment that if it was Christ, if I was in the position, I can't say that I would have been praying. And furthermore, you know, we're not going to read it, but you know, when when the when Judas comes and betrays Christ with a kiss, he brings all those armed men with him. One man stands up for Christ, and it's Peter, and he goes and he slices off the ear of one of the the high priest's servants. In that moment, would I have told Peter, stop, don't do that. Or would I have said, yeah, let's go. This, this is the most, You know what? I'm just going to have a little fun, God. I'm just going to go fight these people, and, and we'll take care of it later. I mean, I, the, the, for, for Jesus Christ to be fully human and struggle with all of these emotions, you know, as a man, you know what it feels like to be enraged? Uh, it's not just driving. <laughs> Sometimes you get enraged at the grocery store waiting in line. I mean, someone, someone's taking 50 hours to check out, then they've got 65 coupons. Like, what are you doing? I got to go. You know, like there's things that will just set us off. Did Jesus Christ ever get angry? I can only really think of the one time he got angry. It was in the temple, wasn't it? It was in the temple when they were making a desecration of the house of God. And he flipped over the tables and he said, get out of here. My father's house is not a house of merchandise. It's a house of prayer. He was willing to fight to defend prayer and to defend the sanctity of the temple. I mean, that shows you what made Jesus angry. It's not what makes us angry, you know? All right, so what's our conclusion here? We know the conclusion of the gospel. We know what happens. I would love to keep going and just go through it, but that's a message for another time. But what are we supposed to do? As we study God's word here and we think about what would we do if we were in Jesus' shoes, I think we find that we would have a lot of struggles and troubles. We wouldn't be able to do what God needed him to do. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, right after the book of Romans. Romans is right after Acts. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I got one verse that I want to use as a conclusion here. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. I have a problem that I can't turn pages very well. I have no feeling in my fingertips. <laughs> my wife gets mad at me when I'm reading my kids' storybooks because I can't turn the pages. <laughs> I try to turn one page; I turn three, and my kids are getting agitated. Like Dad, what's wrong with you? Just turn the pages. I, say, I, I can't. I can't do it. Uh, Brother Giant, that's my phone. If you want to silence that, all right. One Corinthians chapter six, verse eleven. Let's read. It. And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Let me read that again. And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. You know what my favorite S word is? Someone shout it out. My favorite word that starts with the letter S. Amen. Salvation. Salvation. First thing we all need, salvation. Because until we're born again, we don't have life. Until we're born again of the Spirit of God, we are on our way to hell. Until we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we cannot go to heaven. So there has to be a moment at some point in your life where you accept Christ, you accept his salvation, you ask him to forgive you of your sins, you repent for the wrong things that you've done, you put your faith in Jesus Christ that he can and will save you, and you ask him to do it. And he saves you. That is salvation. That is when you get born again of the Spirit of God. You become a child of God. God writes your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. And the angels in heaven celebrate that moment. But in this verse, we find my second favorite S word. Someone yell it out. Amen. Sanctification. Now, sanctification, you may not be as familiar with the word as salvation. But sanctification is the step two. Step two. So being born again, being saved, salvation is step one. Well, sanctification is step two. But you know what's beautiful about sanctification? God does it. Salvation, we get because we accept what Christ did for us. But we have to come to him and ask. You know, it's, it's like the difficulty of saying you're sorry, right? Right? Nobody wants to ever say they're sorry. It's, it's hard to look someone in the eyes and say you're sorry. When you get saved, that is, a, in effect, what you're doing. You're saying sorry to God, and that's not easy to do. But sanctification, we don't have to do anything. That's God's promise. God promises that once we become saved, once we're born again by the Spirit of God, once we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, He promises that He will not leave us the way that we are. And amen. I'm thankful for that. Because listen... I know who I am. It's taken me decades to figure out just how bad I can be sometimes. You can ask my wife. She'll tell you. (laughs) Amen. But listen, I don't want to be me any longer than I have to be me. Amen. I want to be someone like Jesus Christ. I want to be loving. I want to be caring. I want to be compassionate. I want to be full of grace and mercy. And I want to be someone that just wants to go around and just help people. I don't want to worry about my own things. I don't want to have a pride or arrogance about me. I don't want any of that. I just want to be humble and serve other people. That's what I want. But that's not who I am. It's not. <laughs> and if I, if I convince myself, oh, yeah, I'm that person, and I'm just lying to myself because I know who I am. I, I, every sin in this book I'm, where I'm guilty of. Pride, arrogance, um, you know, lust, uh, greed, whatever you want to call it. Like I, I fall short, and I do. But that's not where God's going to leave me. Because when God saves me, he agrees to do something that I could never do. Jesus Christ says, through sanctification, hey, you are the way you are right now. I'm not going to leave you there. You came to me for salvation. Amen. Now I'm going to help you get to where I'm at. He's not going to leave you there. Little by little, Jesus Christ, God, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, through sanctification, little by little, is going to make you more and more of the character of God. It's not overnight, it's not flipping a switch. But look at people who have been saved for two weeks versus people who've been saved for two decades. Is there a difference? Yeah, just like a little baby, right? A little, does a little baby act right <laughs> from day one? No, they need a lot of help, don't they? Listen, born again Christians need a lot of help, but they get help by the church, they get help by the Holy Spirit, they get help by reading their Bible, they get help by prayer. God promises to do a perfect work, and God promises that he will not stop until it is finished. That's the best news we could ever hope for. I'm not going to walk into heaven the same sinful person that I am right now. I'll be more like Christ. I don't know how much more. (laughs) I hope as much as he'll let me. But all of us, when we get to heaven, we will be more like him than we are today, and that is the process of sanctification. It gets better over time. Now, young people, there's some things that uh, actually do get better over time. You may not believe that. But I'll give you, I'll give you one illustration. Brother Paul, you might appreciate this. Uh, raise your hand if you have a cast iron skillet. Anybody? Amen. Anybody else have a cast iron skillet? What do we know about cast iron skillets? Listen, when they get used, when they get burnt up with that fire, when they get put up with that olive oil, when they get bathed in that, when they get cleaned right, taken care of right, they get better over time. It's amazing. Cast iron skillets actually get stronger when you take care of them right. You know, they may gain 15-20% more tensile strength. How is that possible? I don't know. The refinement of the fire, the refinement of the seasoning, the refinement of taking care of it the right way, when Christ gets a hold of us, he makes us better with age. So you may look at yourself in the mirror and say, "Well, I'm getting worse." Well, listen, don't look at the outside. Look at the inside if you're a saved, born-again believer, by the promise of sanctification, you are being made better every single day. And that's by God's grace. It's his work. It's not us. We're not the ones doing it. God is the one doing it. And that's why we can trust that it's going to work out because God is in charge of it. If it was up to us, we'd probably foul it up. But it's not. It's up to God. So don't get down on yourself. Don't get out. Don't get discouraged. Don't get frustrated. Look at your Savior. Look at how perfect he is. And just know that God promises, promises that he will make you more like your Savior every single day. And it's a free gift. Wow. Let's just thank God. Let's thank God that he has plans for us to that degree. That he has such great things in store for us. Let's pray. Uh, Dear Lord. Uh, thank you for your word tonight, Lord. Thank you for your message. Uh, Father, I just pray for all of us here in the church. Um, I pray, Lord, that you can help us to, to understand, Lord, that um, we, we can't be perfect, even if we wanted to be. We, we can't be perfect right away, Lord, but we can have faith in you, and we can have trust in you, and Lord, we can lean on you more, maybe tomorrow or the next week than we do today. Help us to realize, Lord, how you move and how you work, and help us not to get in the way. Help us just to obey you, Lord, to obey your simple commandments. And Lord, help us to share the gospel with others. Help us to grow in faith and knowledge of you. Help us to read our Bibles. Help us to pray, Lord. When the devil comes to try and take away the the strength of our spirit, Lord, would you please help us and strengthen us then? And Lord, little by little, little becomes a lot. And little is much, Lord, when you're in it. And I just pray for you tonight, Lord, that you would bless the service, bless all these uh, folks here, Lord, as they go home, as all of us leave. Uh, Help us, Lord, just to to be encouraged by your word. And thank you for being the perfect sacrifice and the perfect uh, God, Lord, that we can ever be. Thank you for what you did for us on the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 All right, As the piano plays, if you want to uh, have a moment of prayer, uh, please feel free to come down to the altar and pray. Um, whatever you want to ask God for, or whatever we want to thank God for, uh, God listens. Jesus spent his last night on earth. He spent it in prayer to God the Father. And if it was important to him, it should be important to all of us. So please come to the altar and pray. And uh, take a moment. Amen. Thank you, everybody, for being here tonight. That concludes our service. I uh, hope you have a great rest of your week. hope you're refreshed and recharged, and uh, don't leave home without your Bible. <laughs> it's the best advice I could give you. Uh, let's pray. Uh, thank you, Lord, for tonight. Thank you for the service. Uh, please give us all safe traveling mercies, Lord. Uh, thank you for all the prayer requests tonight, Lord. I pray that you would hear them and uh, just do with them what you will, Lord. And uh, please bless us, every single one of us, Lord, and use us out there in the world uh, to be lights for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you.